How do the United States and other Western societies manipulate young men into serving in the military? What is behind modern society's valorization and veneration of the soldier at Remembrance Day and similar ceremonies? To what extent is the ideology of militarism being deliberately perpetuated through the promotion of sports and popular entertainment? Is war culture built into the fabric of the institution known as the nation-state? Is it possible for humanity to overcome the psychology of war? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we will hear perspectives from two men who have participated in military aggression on behalf of the United States, retired U.S. Army Special Forces Master Sergeant Stan Goff and Iraq war deserter and book author Joshua Key. On today's program, Dismantling the Pro-War Cult, a conversation with Stan Goff and Joshua Key. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 14, 2014. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. A commander of one of the Ukrainian neo-Nazi battalions, the Donbass, Semyon Semyonchenko, has just returned from the U.S., where he met with senior senators from both parties and received commitments of material support. He posted a comment on Facebook in which he gives a detailed explanation of this assistance. He was also received by IRI, that's the International Republican Institute, and NDI, National Democratic Institute, the international branches of the two main American political parties, and met with Democratic Senator Robert Menendez and Republican Senator Robert Corker. Quoting from the Post, Menendez and Corker are the two senators who have sponsored the Ukraine Freedom Support Act, a bill that will allocate money to provide assistance to Ukraine, including the supply of weapons, radar, anti-tank weapons, drones, communication systems, and many other useful things for our army. That's from the article, Ukrainian Neo-Nazi Commander, The U.S. is Training and Funding Us, by Federico Pieraccini, posted November 12th, originally appearing at Russia Insider. The big banks and government agencies have been conspiring to manipulate commodities prices for decades. The big banks are taking over important aspects of the physical economy, including uranium mining, petroleum products, aluminum, ownership and operation of airports, toll roads, ports, and electricity. And they are using these physical assets to massively manipulate commodities prices, scalping consumers of many billions of dollars each year. The experts say that big banks will keep manipulating markets unless and until the, their executives are thrown in jail for fraud, because the system is rigged to allow the big banks to commit continuous and massive fraud and then to pay small fines as the cost of doing business. 
That's from the article, Big Banks Busted, Massively Manipulating Foreign Exchange, Precious Metals, and Every Other Market, by Washington's blog, posted November 12th. In the last few days, China has signed direct currency agreements with Canada, becoming North America's first offshore RMB hub, which CBC reports analysts suggest, quote, could double, maybe even triple, the level of Canadian trade between Canada and China, unquote, impacting the need for dollars. But that is not the week's biggest petrodollar precariousness news, as the Examiner reports a new chink in the petrodollar system was forged as China signed an agreement with Qatar to begin direct currency swaps between the two nations using the yuan and establishing the foundation for new direct trade with the OPEC nation in the very heart of the petrodollar system. As Simon Black warns, quote, it's happening with increasing speed and frequency, unquote. And as Black notes, everyone is in on the trend. All across the world, the renminbi is quickly becoming the currency for trade, investment, and even savings. That's from the article, Petrodollar Panic? China Signs Currency Swap Deal with Qatar and Canada by Tyler Durden, posted November 12th, originally appearing at Zero Hedge. The Republicans rode to power by exploiting discontent with Obama's five waves of reactionary policies. They will now cooperate with him in launching a sixth wave. The Republican congressional majority will embrace Obama's proposal to fast-track free trade treaties covering Asia and Europe, currently blocked by House Democrats and opposed by U.S. trade unions. The Republicans will join with Obama in backing corporate tax reform which substantially reduces the tax on U.S. multinational corporations' overseas earnings in order to end the hoarding of profits in low-tax countries, while intensifying austerity on American workers and the poor. In other words, Obama will now openly coordinate with his Republican counterparts on an agenda they have shared from the first day he took office. This time, Barack Obama, the con man, will have to play it straight and cut the populist palaver, Republicans and their business partners demand economic payoffs and overseas military victories. That's from the article, The Con Man Cornered, Obama and the Democratic Debacle of 2014, by Professor James Petrus, posted November 12th. From covert CIA assistance to actual coordination from death squad experts like Robert Ford, the United States and NATO were directly responsible for the Syrian crisis. By supporting the rebels early on, NATO was, in fact, supporting ISIS, since ISIS is nothing more than the current name for what was already in place in Syria when NATO embarked on its destabilization campaign in 2010. Similar assistance was provided by Syria's neighbors and fellow Middle Eastern countries with Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and a number of other Gulf state feudal monarchies providing many of the terrorists and the money needed to pay and supply them. Jordan provided training grounds and logistics. Turkey provided the conduit and air support, and Israel provided air cover and intelligence. Such coordination and military support continues in 2014, with the U.S. now engaging in airstrikes that are aimed not at ISIS, but at Syrian infrastructure. That was from the article, ISIS Fires American-Made Missiles at Syrian Army, by Brandon Turbeville, Posted November 12th, originally appearing at Activist Post. What Gennady had said was, quote, I thank God you are here because they will not attack us now that you are, unquote. What followed was a description shocking to me 
of regular artillery barrages against the villages and settlements in this area. Gennady told us that the villages say, quote, they are playing tennis because they play three sets every match to try and kill us, unquote. We had heard about people using the term tennis for those actions before, but so far we had thought this meant watching the shells watch flying over like a tennis ball during a game. Evidently it was not. We were shocked by the cold description. That was from the article, Witness Account from Eastern Ukraine, National Guard and Right Sector Battalions Killing Civilians. It is attributed to an OSCE team member codenamed Colonel Tulip. And it was posted November 12th and originally published by Slaviangrad.org. According to the autopsy results, not only was Williams under the influence of antidepressant drugs, but the powerful antipsychotic, Seroquel, was also found at the scene and appears to have been recently taken by Williams. While toxicology tests apparently were negative for the antipsychotic, Seroquel, the fact remains that a bottle of Seroquel prescribed to Williams on August 4th, just seven days prior to Williams' suicide, was missing eight pills. The Seroquel instructions advised to take one pill per day as needed. Side effects associated with Seroquel include psychosis, paranoid reactions, delusions, depersonalization, and suicide attempt. The question that has to be asked is why the press continues to promote the idea that no drugs were found in Williams' system. That's from the article, Robin Williams was on drugs at the time of his death, antidepressant drugs, by Kelly Patricia O'Meara, posted November 13th, originally appearing at CCHR International. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. As mentioned in last week's show, sentiments around the need to mitigate or put an end to war seem to be receding in favor of a universal celebration of the courage, valor, and daring do of the courageous men and women of the military as they fight, die, and kill, supposedly to secure our freedoms. What do we make of the instinct to make war, and, and what would be necessary to put an end to conflict? Is this dream even realistic. To discuss these issues, we're joined by two U.S. Army veterans who have come to see the dark side of this phenomenon. Stan Goff served in the U.S. Army from 1970 to 1996. His first assignment was as an infantryman in the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vietnam. His service took him to seven more conflict areas after Vietnam, including Guatemala, Grenada, El Salvador, Peru, Colombia, Somalia, and Haiti. His assignments included 2nd Ranger Battalion, 1st Ranger Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, 7th Special Forces, the Jungle Operations Training Center, and the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, where he taught military science. He's also the former organizing director for Democracy South and has authored numerous articles and three books, including Hideous Dream, a soldier's memoir of the U.S. invasion of Haiti, Full Spectrum Disorder, the military in the new American century, and Sex and War. Also joining us, U.S. Private First Class Combat Engineer Joshua Key, 
was dispatched to Iraq in April of 2003, shortly after the Iraq War began. He attests to have witnessed numerous instances of abuse of the Iraqi civilian population while there, which went unaddressed by commanding officers, having had his eyes opened about the reality of the war. He fled the military at the end of 2003, entered Canada with his then wife and children, and sought asylum in the country. He has written a memoir of his experiences called The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq. Joshua had been deemed denied refugee status. He's now remarried and, along with other resistors in Canada, faced deportation back to the U.S. where they would face lengthy prison sentences for desertion. Stan Goff, Joshua Key, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you. Okay, uh, I want to start now. Uh, st- maybe I could get each of you just to talk a little bit about your own experiences um, First of all, starting with how you came to join the military in the first place and uh, some of the experiences that you had there that, that started to change your thinking about, uh, about the, the, the nobility of uh, going, off, uh, going off to war. Stan, do you, do you want to address that? Um, sure. I, I, I'm a little bit slower than, uh, than, than Josh to actually um, <laughs> apply some sort of a moral analysis to the war. It took me a lot longer. I stayed in for a full career. Um, <clears throat> um, and it, it's, it's hard to remember anything uh, that long ago, but um, my best recollection of why I went in the Army uh, was much less about um, patriotism and a lot more um, about just wanting to, uh, to do something different. You know, and, and, and in particular, it was, and this is something that I've been sort of addressing in my writings, and then I've got another book coming out with Cascade called Borderline. It's about war, sex, and the church, but um, I think the pursuit of masculinity had a great deal to do. If you want to start looking at why people go in the military um, all the way down to the to the psychological level, um, that had a great deal to do with it. It's just a, you know, pursuit of my own masculinity, wanting to prove myself. Um and and it was you know it was in that period in the Cold War when we'd grown up subjected to a lot of propaganda. So there was a, a real clear set of good guys and bad guys, and the bad guys were the communists, and the good guys were us. And the, um, I mean, you know, you had propaganda films out like the Green Berets and things like that. I was always exposed to it. You know, in addition to all the pap that we got, you know, growing up with Disney and whatnot. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to put your finger on one single reason why uh, people go in, but uh, uh, I, I think the more important thing is uh, for me was why did I go back after I'd gotten out and, and uh, why did I end up staying in? And again, I think that had a, a lot more um, to do with my sexual identity as a male than it had to do um, with patriotism. Um, though Patriotism and nationalism certainly was a factor. Is, and I actually, if it's sort of your Josh's experience on this, because like I say, I'm a much slower learner than Joshua. Okay, Joshua, do you want to, uh, you know, how, how did you uh, find yourself in that uh, position of uh, choosing, and you did choose to go into the military? I chose, I would say, primarily because of economic reasons. I was. Uh, Married, I had two children, my third on the way. I was a skilled welder. 
I was making $7.25 an hour in Oklahoma City. I thought there has to be another way out of this. And I went back to the way it was in high school. I, had R I took ROTC. It was join the military, steady pay, health care. I, I looked at it primarily for, you know, I didn't care about the college money. I cared about the steady pay and being able to provide for my family. And that, that was really the reasons why I joined at the time. Interesting. So, I mean, even with all that, the heat from nine eleven and uh, all the rest of it, and then the need to, uh, um, you know, def defend the country from this outside enemy, and and you did buy into a lot of that, but your primary motive was to uh, <laughs> basically very be decent. You didn't have a lot of options. Yeah, I was, I was to provide for my family. I, being, how would you put it, a small town country boy from Oklahoma, the politics sort of went right over my head. But the only thing I seen in front of me was a way to get out of this, a way to furthermore my family, and, and to move on. Mm -hmm. Well, Stan, uh, Stan Goff, I mean, what were what kind of choices did you have at that time? I mean, you talk about the the need to sort of, I, I mean, my paraphrase, like prove yourself as a man. But uh, did you have any kinds of economic uh, hardships uh, that, that constrained your choices? Sure, um, I, I think most anybody that's um uh, you got an, ex you know, uh, 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 an acceptance letter to law school is not going to join the army. <laughs> uh, in most cases, my options um, when I went in was to go to work in the same factory as my mother and father. They both worked center fuselage assembly on the F-4 Phantom at the McDonnell Douglas. It was then just McDonnell um, uh, Aircraft Factory, um, and, and that's what everybody in our neighborhood did. So it was that or go in the army. I didn't have money for college. Um, and I wasn't interested in college. I was, you know, interested in um, girls and getting high and all the stuff that kids are interested in. You know what I mean? And, uh, uh, when I got out the first time, um, I swore I'd never go back in because I was really, really angry about my experience in Vietnam. And uh, uh, but you know, four and a half years later, um, I was I was married with an infant, and I was working in a a sweatshop in Wilmer, Arkansas. And uh, that makes the army look pretty good. Um, you know, you can get health care again. You can get a, a, a regular paycheck again. Um, money for a place to live and money for your groceries and all that stuff. Sure, it, uh, that was a big factor back in. It was just that when I came back in that time, I got pulled into uh, special operations field within the first two and a half years that I was back in. And it turned out, you know, that I was pretty good at some of that. And, um, you know, when people find out that they're good at something, they like to do it. If you find out you're, you know, you're good at chess, you like to play chess. If you find out you're good at basketball, you like to play basketball. And it turned out that I was, uh, I was pretty good at rangering and all that. So uh, it was something that I got a lot of strokes for. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of reinforcement. So it ended up sort of being a career trajectory for me afterwards. But certainly... The economic pressure uh, is what got me back in. The, the sweatshop thing was not working for me, so uh, the army was a much better option than that. Stan, um, y could you talk about like, like you went to Vietnam, and uh, like how soon was it that you started to see things that departed from the idealism that that. You know, I, I guess those of us who've never been in the military, you would be subjected to, uh, you know, 
going off to, to fight some noble cause, and, and you started see, seeing things that disturbed you. Do, you. do you recall any of them and how you reacted to that? Oh, yeah, it started within an hour. <laughs> I mean, I got off the plane in, uh, in, in Cameron Bay, and the first thing was a, a guy that I'd known back in AIT was there, and he gave me an army sock full of uh, uh, opium-impregnated marijuana, which is uh, it was kind of a surprise. Um, in the first formation I showed up, I wasn't really even sure where I was. Uh, within a couple of days, they processed us out and sent us to a place for an orientation into my unit out in Sharang Valley. And, and, and during the classes, we had guys demonstrating the M203, actually the M79 grenade launcher back then. Uh, they were shooting 40 millimeter, 40 millimeter uh, gas grenades at uh, civilians who were scouring over a garbage dump to, to, to find food and materials that they needed to get by. Um, and, you know, they had no more concern for those civilians than they would have had if there were, you know, a flock of starlings out there. Uh, within the first two weeks that I was actually with my unit, I was already being told that the proper way to treat Vietnamese was like pigs because they all hated this and all wanted to kill us. And then, like I said, within the first two weeks, uh, they had just had a booby trap that had killed one member of the platoon right before I arrived there. And uh, uh, six guys from my platoon went down into the ville one day and just killed an old lady uh, as revenge. Came back in, told a lie about it, her having thrown a hand grenade at him. Um, and... Uh, Within a few days after her body had bloated out on the LZ, uh, a guy came to claim her body. It was her son, who actually was a South Vietnamese Army lieutenant. Uh, and, and, and that was kind of, you know, everything that I thought I knew uh, within that first three weeks pretty much evaporated. Um, and, and uh, you know, you're in a situation that's very extreme. <laughs> uh, we, we didn't. We didn't stay on pacification very long. We went into a counteroffensive phase and started walking through the the, the mountains. Um, we were just basically called on swing, but we were on search and destroy operations constantly. Um, and uh, it didn't take me long, you know, because I had to, uh, the, the people that I relied on to keep me alive um, were also people who I had a, you know, started out with a great deal of fear of because if you were a screw up, it wasn't unusual for somebody to just, uh, you know, shoot you. <laughs> um, so you're, you're, you're enculturated very quickly and it didn't take me long until, you know, I hated Vietnamese too. Um, it was just sort of an adaptation. Uh, and that, that went on for, I don't know, about six months into my tour. I had an experience with a young Vietnamese man that came up and gave me a, a stalk of sugarcane. And I don't know what happened. Maybe it's the, the fatigue or just the, you know, uh, just the general situation. But, you know, I verbally attacked him and, and, uh, and, and he treated me with just this absolute kindness and, um, you know, this racism that I've been nurturing just sort of fell apart and I kind of had to, I, I fell apart myself at, at, at night. Uh, well, fortunately, just a couple months later, I got a really bad case of recurrent cough syndrome malaria uh, that took me out of the field, and that was the end of my tour in Vietnam. But uh, uh, what I what 
I did learn from that and never forgot was that I had gone to Vietnam thinking that I was anything but a racist. Uh, I learned this very quickly that if you're obliged to control a population, if you're put in a position where you have to be suspicious of a population all the time, racism comes very easily. Uh, you know, it's just a, sort of that, it kind of reminds me of the Stanford prison experiment. Uh, where they had people uh, put into the notional roles of prisoners and guards, and they had to terminate the experiment within two weeks because the guards had become so utterly abusive. Uh, it wasn't because they hated the people who were the prisoners. It was because they were put into a role where their role uh, defined them that way against the prisoners. And you know, that, that role um, sort of shaped their consciousness. Uh, and that's exactly what our roles did. Uh, when, and, and I'm sure that Joshua has a, a similar experience of, of being in Iraq, and how easily and how quickly people who became suspicious, or suspicious of all Iraqis and were obliged to control all Iraqis um, began to uh, dehumanize them um, in a way. You know, we call the Vietnamese goops, we call them hajis. And you have to dehumanize them in order to make it okay um, to control them or to abuse them, or to burn their houses, or kill their livestock, or kill them. You have to have, uh, you have to dehumanize them to make that something that uh, is okay to do. Um, Joshua, do you want to maybe address that? Um, like your experiences were the moments when you your eyes were opened and uh, how you uh, came to, to terms with that? I would say from basic training. <clears throat> they sort of beat it into our heads that they're Hajis, they're Habibs, they're other names. <clears throat> we um when I when I first landed in, in in Kuwait and then went into Iraq, I um was very much racist. I, I was racist against anything that wasn't um I, I was raised like that. Anything that's not white I was racist against. Um through my high school and everything I it became clear to me that uh no one in my home needs to, I don't need to be racist towards anyone. It was uh, my high school was half white, half black, so it became very evident to me fast that uh we're all friends. It went good. Upon arriving in Iraq, though, it was, um, I think, very, um, my goodness, was it, you had anger towards them from the time you arrived. You hated them. You didn't want to look at them. It was, uh, that's the enemy. They made it very clear. My eyes opened when I started noticing that the things that we were doing, these people are just like me. They're poor. They have nothing. They're trying to do whatever they can to survive. The my times in Iraq when I think it hit me the most is when I was pulling guard on a, a Ramadi Children's Hospital, and uh, there was a little girl adjacent to the road that kept running over, running over to get MREs and water, Mister Food, Mister Water. I would give her always my MREs. I'd give her my water. One day she comes, her head explodes like a mushroom. Um, single shot. Very uh, light caliber, so I always had the suspicion it was one of the guys within my, my squad and platoon that we were all there with. Um, after that, I was on top of that children's hospital, and a doctor walked out. He was Iraqi. He could speak perfect English. He handed me cigarettes. We started talking, and with that conversation with him, I think it even started to hit me more that, wait a minute, these are not, they're not all terrorists. They're not all evil. These people are, they're just like me. And, and it hit me even, and that's when it started to change. That's when everything started to change in my mind, that these people are, 
they're, they're people just like me i my time there like i laugh now like uh, it i looked to the point so much like an iraqi by the time i came home that they would always come up to me and call me brother and start talking to me in iraq in arabic i i just thought it was um it was a shock to to see that they were just like me not uh, not evil people mm. and yet uh, your 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 squad mates uh you, did they were they going through something similar? It seemed like how how is it that you've uh, what what separates you from the other people in your squadron in that regard? I think that uh, other ones thought the same way. We would talk about it, and then we'd be told to shut up, um, or we'd get ourselves in trouble, get Article 14s and everything else. So we we got to the point where we really wouldn't talk too much about anything except for complaining about why the hell are we here? There's no weapons of mass destruction, obviously not, or they would have used them on us. So what the hell are we doing? But uh, the nature of talking about them while you're fraternizing with the enemy, you know, and and that's what they started to do at the beginning. It was constant communication. And then all of a sudden, no, you're fraternizing with the enemy. Don't talk to them. And I said, well, why? Because what I'm seeing, we're all seeing that they're just like us. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. We're in the shadow of uh, Remembrance Day uh, here in Canada, or Veterans Day as, as you two know it, as, as Americans, and you've got to uh, basically what we've seen is this uh, increased tendency to look at the uh, you know this is more of an occasion to kind of celebrate the the you know the the, the fact that these uh, these men have been willing to put their lives on the line to protect our freedoms here at home um and i mean uh, th- there is a kind of intimidation that that, that comes along if if some people of a more you know pacifist persuasion suggest that you know we should be trying to say no to war, you know, that the, this is a terrible waste of life. And and, and there's a hesitation in, in the sense that people interpret it as a kind of, uh, you know, you're, you're putting down the soldier in some sense, this you know, soldier, this icon. Do, do any of – do either of you want to comment on that, like the icon, iconography of, of the soldier and, and the extent – like, does it go beyond just uh, the fact that you know political leaders are trying to use this as an you know, an occasion to exploit people into going to war? Where 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 does that come from? I, I actually wrote a fairly substantial chapter in my last book, the one that's coming out, I think, around February, uh, about when this started in the United States in particular, and it was back then the Civil War. Um, uh, before that, people were very suspicious even of standing armies. Uh, and the Civil War, the American Civil War, was the first uh, modern war, the first total war in a lot of ways. It was the first mechanized war. It was the first time that supplies were being moved by trains and communication was over the wires. And, uh, you know, the first aerial reconnaissance balloons, the first submarines, the first uh, armored battleships, all those things, the first time that... Uh, 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 Machine guns were put into use, even though they were put into general use because of the smoke back then. But there were all these things, and, the, and, and it was the first total war that was waged uh, against the entire society. It was understood that the whole population was at war against another whole population. So in many ways, the, the American Civil War was the first, um, the first modern total war. Um, 
another thing, a peculiar thing happened, and Harry Stout uh, wrote um, upon the altar of the nation. Upon the altar of the nation, it's a, a moral history of the Civil War. It's a very interesting book because what he shows is that here, uh, a couple hundred years after disestablishment, after there was you know the end of Christendom, the the, the end of the political power of the church in Euro America. Uh, in Europe and America, um, there, there was the, 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 the emergence of the nation state as the, as the political sovereign. But, uh, and William Cavanaugh, a Catholic theologian, writes about this too. He called it the migration of the holy. What happened was the, the, the nation state in the Civil War became sacred. It became the civic religion. And it, it, uh, took on all the aspects of a religion. We, you know, we had, uh, 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 speeches that were, uh, dripping with religious imagery. And, and it's sort of interesting that, um, if you think about, you know, going back to say, um, the year 100, 200, 300 prior to the Constantinian, uh, uh, uh shift, in the church, the, the, the person who was most uh, honored in Christianity was a martyr, someone who's willing to die, uh, and willing to die for their faith. Uh, but with a civic religion, it's the person who's willing to die for their country. And that became not just willing to die for your country, but willing to kill for your country. And so that's, I, I think that underwrites the veneration of veterans, because there are plenty of people out there who take as many risks as veterans, more risks than most veterans uh, have. There are plenty of people out there that suffer from uh, from traumas, traumas as bad or, as, or or worse than combat. There are plenty of people out there who contribute a lot more to society, uh, but they're not venerated in the same way that veterans are. I think we're using that veterans are venerated that way is the veneration of veterans becomes a veneration of war, and war is the fundamental organizing principle of the nation. So war becomes uh, 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 part of the national liturgy uh, in this in this in this civic religion, and, uh, and you see, it is almost a, 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 an article of faith, and that's I think why uh, there's this sense of uh, sacredness about it. The sacrifice of the soldier becomes much greater than any other form of sacrifice, uh, and and it, it, there is an element of intimidation. And it. it's it's, uh, it's it, you know you're you're a heretic uh, if if you if you question this if you don't uh, participate in the veneration of veterans and the veneration of soldiers, um, you are an outcast um, because you're seen in exactly the same way uh, as a, as a heretic was seen in the High Middle Ages. Um, I, I think that has a lot to do with it. This notion of a civic religion uh, is really an interesting lens to kind of view this through, and it makes a lot more sense of why, you know, we have these parades and these flag wavings and, and, and all this, uh, you know, we want to refer to every soldier, even if they were a flute and piccolo player, player in the Air Force band, as heroes, you know. it's uh, That's where I think this stuff comes from. Yeah, Joshua Key, you've gotten. I, I've seen online. There's a lot of angry commentary about you because you're a deserter, yeah. and uh, that's like, yeah, like yeah, you know, you're like a leper, unclean, as they say. You, you want to yeah. talk about those sorts of experiences, and that, does it surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. I, I but, but I. You never... used to think that way, though, didn't you? Yes, and you know, I will never hide. 
behind what I what I am. I am a deserter, and and in a sense, I'm damn proud to be one. You know, people say, you know, well, how do you live with uh, what you did? How do you do this? Well, I walked away from it. That's how I think half the mind that I have left, I have because I did say, got up and walked away. Um, I. I look at the, the, the Veterans Day and the Remembrance like it's a don't thank me for what the hell I did. Like when, when I first got off the plane in uh, Atlanta, I got off, there was veterans lined on both sides. I still had the, my bloody DCUs from, from Iraq on. I put my head down and I walked as fast as I could because damn, don't sit and thank me for what I did. And I walked as fast as I possibly could to get through them people. Now... I look at it like I had an experience even on Remembrance Day. I go I go to a gas station here. I try to buy a juice, and the woman won't sell me a juice. And I said, why the hell won't you sell me this juice? And she goes, well, this is to honor honor the veterans. And I said, how the hell is that honoring the veterans? By not selling me a juice. And then the, the girl just said, well, but no, well, obviously you just don't care. And I said, no, I'm a veteran, so answer the question. How does that honor me by you not selling me a juice? And then she goes, well, I'm just going to call the cops. And I said, well, call them, because I'll have the discussion with them of why you won't sell me your juice as being a veteran. But it's, uh, the problem is, is no one, it's all, remember the veterans, remember the veterans, but remember what for? What's the whole, what's the whole scenario of what you're remembering, what you're honoring? You have no idea of what the hell you're even doing, except for it's just a day of honoring the veterans. What about the rest of the year? You said that you're, you're like in an earlier interview. You talked about uh, one of your children came back from Remembrance Day, and what, what did he report back about the meaning of Remembrance Day? Well, it was uh, you know I said, well, what did they what did they teach you? And he said, well, you know, uh, you know, they went and died for us. And I said, is that it? Is that all they taught you? And being in kindergarten, is that people went over and died for you? And, you know, I had to control myself when I went to school the next because I was like, if that's all you're teaching my children, don't teach my damn children anything because you're not teaching them any nothing. Hmm. But it was a uh, – it's just I guess it's in the society, right? You watch the news. You hear everything else. I mean it's, it's made to be a lot more – like I said, when is the day to remember all the death, civilian deaths? Because there's been a hell of a lot more civilians than what there's been of soldiers died. But, uh, you know, let's just forget about that and act like that's non-existent and doesn't exist. So it's it's shocking, in, in many ways to my to me as as far as the deserter and the like. I get all the time that I should be hung in town square. I just laugh at stuff like that because it's uh, you you might not call me a patriot, but I see myself in a patriot in many in, in different ways than what most would. I, I stood up. I walked away. I just recently have been in contact with soldiers that I fought with, and it, it's sort of neat to hear their perspective of. Uh, when you left, this is what happened. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'll never be, how would you put it, uh, down or whichever on what I am. I, I'm, I'm happy to be the deserter, and I always will be. So, Stan Goff, <clears throat> the, uh, the social currents running through our society that, that tends to, um, you know, basically shape us into a warfaring culture. I mean, we, we see it in, in school, we see it in church, we see it in, in popular entertainment and in sports. Um, do, do you think that these are, are things that are just deliberately, consciously conceived, or, or is it just sort of like a natural uh, manifestation of, of this sort of like deep male 
sexual energies, uh, the male violence. I mean, to, to what extent are these um, these currents running through our society deliberately conceived to to perpetuate this uh, wo- this religion of, of war and and, and the uh, and whatnot? Well, there's a well, you, you know, ideology works in a peculiar way. It it it, it, it uh, reproduces power at the same time that it conceals it. And uh, the ideology of militarism uh, is one that uh, is is now more concealed. It's, it's it's very difficult to convince people that we're a militaristic culture because now that's no longer uh, acceptable to call it that, even though it is that we can't call it that. So there's that concealment aspect. But if you go back to the turn of the century, uh, around the time of sort of the, the rise of popularity of Theodore Roosevelt, and around that time, there was, a, there was a real crisis of masculinity, because the frontier had been conquered. Uh, so there was no place, out for, no place else for this masculinity to be proven and and that was actually one of Roosevelt's things. You know, they were afraid that citification, that the urbanization was making uh, was making men weak. And there was actually a call for militarism. Because that was also the time when the United States was very aggressively seeking uh, uh, colonies. <clears throat> and the Spanish-American War was their first attempt to really reach out beyond their own borders and begin to establish uh, colonial peripheries. Um, so uh, with 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 that in that period we see the ideology of militarism really take a hold and you know, being promoted. And two of the things that it was promoted through, very intentionally at the time, now it just becomes kind of a recursive feedback loop in, you know, between the ideology and the culture, but at the time this was very intentional, was that where public schools were developed on a Prussian military model and they were designed to discipline the population and make them more, uh, more, um, uh, adaptable to a militaristic culture. And the other thing was the promotion of sports, in particular football. Now, uh, when, when Jack Johnson defeated a white opponent boxing, that Rip Roosevelt actually called for the prohibition of boxing because this was very much a, a, a white man's thing, this whole, uh, uh, this whole push uh, to read, to regain to get through this crisis of this so-called crisis of masculinity, um, <laughs> but but public schools were very definitely. In fact, it was with the establishment of public schools they also had uh, military science, or what was then considered military science, which became ROTC, was integrated into the schools at the very beginning. At the very beginning, and and the the whole uh, the, the administrative structure, the management structure, and uh, the, the the execution. The, the, the organization of classes themselves were all done on a military model that was adapted from Prussia. So it's been there all along, and it does it does you do these things that were adapted from the military tend to promote uh, an episteme of militarism. Of course they do, whether we recognize it or not, because we tend to uh, we tend not to uh, understand sort of the interpretive frameworks that we use because. Since they are our interpretive frameworks, they seem natural to us. They seem like common sense, um, and that naturalization is is one of the things that sort of conceals ourselves from ourselves. You know, uh, uh, but yeah, the school and sport um, definitely, and and gun culture. Um, after the Civil War, um, people became concerned that they had to fire a 
thousand rounds to shoot one person. And so marksmanship became a big deal after that. And then an organization appeared to promote marksmanship that was very closely aligned with the military. It's called the National Rifle Association. And, and, and another thing, well, the NRA had another partnership at the turn of the century, and that was another uh, organization that was designed to promote uh, military virtues, and that was the Boy Scouts of America, which they actually adapted from the Boy Scouts of, uh, of the United Kingdom. Uh, and they brought a, an advisor over from UK uh, to help establish the Boy Scouts of America. So you had the, the NRA, you had the Boy Scouts, the NRA and the gun culture. You had Boy Scouts uh, promoting all militarism, you know, the same kinds of the uniforms and marching and uh, uh, earning uh, awards and all that stuff was very militaristic and, and football uh, and, and public schools. So all those things together eventually became part of the culture, and these things, you know, again, ideology conceals power, but it also reproduces, and it started reproducing, it, it automatically reproduces uh, those same virtues that are now identified as military virtues. And uh, you know, I think that's, uh, it, it's, it's very much in there, but um, it's not a conspiracy, it's just something that becomes self-organized. Um, you know, uh, society is a very complex thing, <laughs> uh, but it's also a thing that sort of runs under its own steam until something disrupts it. And so all these relationships become naturalized, and they end up setting up these same kinds of feedback loops between what we do and what we think and how we feel and how we understand things. And uh, militarism is basically now in our, in our social genetic code, for lack of a better analogy. If we're being programmed to, to wage wars uh, of domination and with all the, the racial and, and uh, other elements that go with that, how could that realistically be disrupted? If I, if I knew that, I'd be a really smart guy. <laughs> Smarter than anybody else who's around right now because a lot of people would love to know how do we, whoever the we is, uh, fix this, whatever this is. And, 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 and I'm not altogether sure it can be fixed. But I mean, my own my own little um, niche in all this, and trying to figure out how um, how to um, intervene, how to how to uh, deliver that dislocative jolt to people's consciousness about this is through the through the issue of gender, because I think gender is what uh, underwrites militarism at, at a deeper psychological level, at a psychological level that is part that is mostly invisible because. Uh, because these interpretive frameworks are naturalized, they are uh, something that seems like common sense. Um, I, I'm just not really sure. I think we just have to keep chipping away at this, you know, uh, in every way we can, and, and, and uh, confronting this in any way we can. And I'm not at all confident that we, whoever we is, are, are going to fix it. Um, war seems to be a way of life all over the world. And it has been for a long time, and it definitely does correspond to, to uh, well, to two things, and that's uh, uh, large-scale organization and patriarchy uh, of any kind. Um, war seems to be uh, synonymous uh, with those things in, in, the, in the evolution of various cultures. And now, with you know, with uh, with weapons being available all over the world, it makes it much easier for people to try to settle their problems with 
armed conflict. But again, it's also partly because we're organized all over the world now as nation states, modern nation states have one fundamental organizing principle in common, and that is the ability to defend their fixed borders. So war, or or uh, in the case of the more metropolitan nations, the ability to go beyond those borders and, and gain access uh, to the inputs that they need in order to maintain a metropolitan way of life, which is done at the expense of, of global peripheries. So it's, it's built in. I mean, uh, every time we start up our cars, um, Every time you know we go to Walmart, every time we do, it, it, all of us are forced to be complicit um, because, again, the self, the society is self-organized. We're forced to be complicit in in myriad ways. Um, but the the question then becomes, uh, how do we uh, find ways to withdraw step by step from our own complicity? And I'm not sure I have an answer for that um, beyond uh, local solutions because it seems like the big global problems um, have, have such mass and inertia now uh, that even world leaders uh, are only pretending to be in control. I think they themselves are captured by this inertia. And uh, I'm just not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if there is uh, like a a magic wand we can wave over this and and make it all go away. Mm. So I guess what I do is just try to appeal to people one person at a time. Men in particular, that's my little stick, is men in particular, uh, take a look at yourselves and see how in how many ways you're you're motivated by this uh, probative masculinity that associates masculinity with violence and conquest. If we can get men to think more about that, then at least some men will... Uh, learn how to not participate in those structures. And I think that's probably the best we can hope for. Mm. Would you counsel people to just sort of uh, turn their backs on a lot of popular entertainment? I mean, you mentioned the like sports, like football, but also uh, uh, you'll game, you know, some of these electronic games and just about everything that's on television. There, there's usually some subtle messages reinforcing the, those uh, masculine, quote-unquote, virtues. Yeah, I, I think probably more valuable than turning our back on them would be for people to engage in, in, in more astute cultural criticism. Because these, you know, you go and look at, a, at, 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 at you go into a, one of these Cinema Nines or whatever, and, and, and seven out of the nine films will have a man with a gun and, then, you know, a fireball in the background up on the marquee. I mean, it's, it, it, uh, this is it's very much a cultural thing, but, 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 um, uh, since we're going to be exposed to it anyway, we need to be exposed to it in a way that we learn how to be critical about it. And cultural criticism is very, very important. Uh, Susan Jeffords wrote uh, an essay some years ago, back at the beginning of the Iraq War, uh, called Telling the War Story. And she showed how um, by turning these things into stories about individuals, uh, we can avoid looking at the larger structural issues that reproduce war. Right now, the, the war is not something that uh, is being produced for the same reasons now as it was 2,000 years ago. It's a different structure that's reproducing war. It's a different kind of war. So we don't want to we don't want to essentialize war and then and then and then put it beyond our critical intervention. But by turning it into a story about individuals, this one I forget what the name of it is. The last survivor or something that came out recently um, was full of pathos, you know, because 
It was about this, this titanic struggle of this one individual to get through this, uh, uh terrible ordeal. And, 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 you know, it made him, uh, very heroic. But by pulling our focus onto that war story, where we have the pathos of the individual character inside, uh, a story, it redirects our attention away from the, the structural conditions. It redirects our attention away from why was this person here in the first place? What, you know, what, what were the, what are the underlying historical trajectories that underwrite the war? Why, why, uh, why did the United States feel like it had to invade Iraq? Why have we shifted since the Cold War all our attention to Southwest Asia and China? Why is all that stuff going on? And people start asking those questions. Um, then, then, uh, power can be in trouble or a little more trouble they're in right now, uh, because then we begin to see what their true motives are. And I think that's what, that's the main thing that's concealed by ideology, are the true motives and, and the true reasons for, for why things are the way they are. Yeah, you speak to a kind of media literacy. I was just sort of thinking about uh, the, like just maybe busting myself a little bit because I remember in my youth watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, there was this scene where there was this you know, ethnic gentleman. I wasn't quite sure where he was from. He wasn't obviously American, and he was waving this sword around in this really intricate way. And then Indiana Jones just sort of casually pulls out his gun and shoots him, and the crowd just erupted in laughter. I guess we have to kind of deconstruct those sorts of reactions. Exactly, and that's it. I would like to see a constant and relentless deconstruction of just one particular genre of film, and that's the male revenge fantasy. Um, it's the most uh, insidious genre, in my opinion, and it's probably one of the most popular. But the male revenge fantasy, if every time a male revenge fantasy came out, we had uh, an explosion of cultural criticism and an explosion of deconstruction around what was going on with that. I think it would open people's eyes. Why, why do we as an audience participate in it? Why do we cheer when Indiana Jones uh, shoots the guy with the sword and casually walks away as if this man's life is worth nothing at all? Why does that become uh, comic relief, you know, in, 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 for the tension in the film? Why, why is that? And that deconstruction would be very helpful. I, I wish that I knew the answer as well, um, but uh, the only thing I know to do is, is to do what I do, and that's to, to speak about it and to let people know and to, uh, and, to, and to continue that. I know that, like what you said with the video games, I had a... Um, we were raised as brothers. We were cousins. He joined uh, the Army, would have been uh, about eight years ago. When he first joined, he called me. I was already in Canada. He goes, uh, oh, don't worry about it, brother. It'll be like a video game. And I said, what the hell? What do you mean it's going to... You have no idea. It ain't like no damn video game. When you're... And then, of course, three years ago, he gets three of his limbs blown off in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, talking to him on the phone, he said, well, well, brother, it wasn't like a video game. And I said, well, yeah, you don't go get a health packet, and all of a sudden your damn arms and your leg come back on. But that was really his, um, that's what he said. And, I, I, damn, I was a veteran already on, on the run living in Canada, and that was, it's, it'll be like a video game. And I, and I think that is, that's a very big problem of the... Um, desensitizing people of this is what war is going to be like this is how it's going to be this is how you're going to do it you'll just play a video game and then your actual experiences will be like the video game and that's complete and utter bullshit but uh, that's um, you know, I think that there definitely should be more 
something with video games to be less the fantasy of what war is going to be and and more reality joshua your your situation is is pretty critical uh, you uh, there, there's been a, a rash of, of deportation orders going out over the last couple of months, and uh, uh, if you go back to the United States, you have a, a an understanding of what kind of uh, penalty you would pay. Uh, yes, I, with contact with lawyers and trying to to work things out, you know, I've been told I could plea bargain for uh, around 30 years in prison because of writing the book and doing the things that I've done since I've been in Canada. Um, I just sort of, uh, how would you put it, uh, I'm a soldier, always will be, so I always have plan A, B, and C in the back of my mind and always will. But uh, it uh, definitely is a uh, crucial for all of us in Canada who came here. And, and myself, I came here just to live in peace. That's all I wanted. I didn't want nothing else. I don't ask for anything. I don't... Uh, Live off the government. I don't do anything. The only thing I you do can't. is I have to I take care of my children the best I can. I uh, put one, forward, one foot in front of the other every day like any other human being does. And uh, I'm a, what do I always say? I'm, I'm a, a man in an unbelievable situation, an unbelievable story, but uh, definitely will, uh, I will overcome one way or the other. Okay. And I suppose I should say, just as a matter of full disclosure, that uh, the two of us have been working together and I've helped uh, help you know, fundraise on your behalf. Yes. So um, now, Stan, um, maybe some final thoughts from you. You do have a, a book coming out uh, in February uh, on the, the subject of uh, the psychology of war. Do you want to say anything about uh, that or anything else we've discussed over the course of this conversation? Sure. And, and, I, and, and my prayers go out to Joshua and his family. I, I hope everything works out. Um, I do not want to see you in jail. I don't want to see your family go through that. So um, anyway, the book is called Borderline, Reflections on the War, Sex, and the Church. Uh, it's published by Cascade Books, uh, which is a subset of Life and Stock. Uh, and we're hoping February, anyway. <laughs> I'm actually uh, going through the second copy edit uh, right now. I'm hoping that'll come out um, by the first of the year. Well, uh, Stan Goff, uh, Josh Key, it's uh, it's been a great pleasure, uh, you know, having a conversation with with the two of you together. I want to thank you very much for uh, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Stan Goff served with the U.S. Army between 1970 and 1996. He writes the blog com. Joshua Key is an Iraq War deserter and author of The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq. Information on Joshua and other U.S. war resistors in Canada can be found on the website www.resistors.ca. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.